You're listening to the ANA Podcast Network, powered by Odyssey, a leading multi-platform audio content and entertainment company. Listen on the Odyssey app. For Beyond Profit, a podcast of the ANA Center for Brand Purpose, I'm Ken Bolio. Simon Mainwaring, founder and CEO of the strategic brand consultancy We First, is convinced that unless there is a seismic shift in the way we do business, one that serves both humanity and the planet, companies will become irrelevant and societies will fail. In his book, Lead with We, the business revolution that will save our future, he advocates for collaborative engagement, that is, emphasizing the important role that all stakeholders play in solving the challenges of today. In doing so, he argues, companies can create movements that change communities for the better, shape culture, and drive business growth. A top global marketing speaker, author, columnist, and podcast host, Simon has made it his personal mission to help clients build purpose-led movements that accelerate growth and impact. His first book, We First, How Brands and Consumers Use Social Media to Build a Better World, is a New York Times and Wall Street Journal bestseller. He was ranked by Real Leaders Magazine as a top 100 visionary leader and a Momentum Top 100 Impact CEO. He joins me to discuss the power of co-creation, why companies must take risks, the importance of leading with we, and much more. Simon, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much, Ken. So I was poking around your website the other day, and um, I came across this following statement, be a purpose with a company, not a company with a purpose. I'm hoping you can elaborate a bit on that statement. Sure. You know, we're lucky enough to work with a lot of companies like large global enterprises, all the way down to small disruptive startups. And we've been doing it for 12 years and they've all been purpose-led companies. And you start to see the patterns as to what allows a company to succeed and thrive from a business point of view, but also from an impact point of view. And this quote speaks to the mindset that is really common to those companies that succeed. And I want to draw a distinction. If you are a company with a purpose, by that I mean, you know, you've got a product, you've you've got some sort of brand or the reputation out there, but you carve out the impact you're doing through the lens of CSR or philanthropy or sustainability, which is siloed off to the side. And the challenge there is that, you know, folks today, and I'm not just talking consumers and customers, but I'm talking employees and investors they look at that and go, really, is that just greenwashing? Is that a bolt-on? You know, is that just sort of cause marketing, you know, from the 80s and 90s? As opposed to, you know, what you shared, being a purpose with a company. And what that speaks to is having a foundational core purpose that informs the entire organization, upstream with all your suppliers, internally with all your consumers, and externally, uh, internally with all your employees, and externally with all your consumers. And the reason that's so important is it creates a red thread that connects, you know, your value chain, your supply chain, your employee culture, and also your products and how you take them, take them to market. And when you do that, you can become a movement where there's a compounding effect between all the various stakeholders and their efforts between suppliers, employees, you know, customers and consumers, and even society at large. So all of this is about creating a force multiplier for your business. But if you're a company with a purpose, you won't get the same results than if you're a purpose with a company. Would you say that this is sort of the next evolution of purpose, purpose 2.0? I would say so, yes. And I think for a couple of reasons. One, you know, 
every company is on a different point in their purpose journey. You know, and some are still sitting on the sidelines wondering whether they should do it at all. Some are doing the bare minimum or what their competitors are doing. Some are just managing the optics of it through a PR campaign or an ad campaign. And some of them are genuinely doing the hard work and making the CapEx and OpEx expensive, you know, investments to really transform what they do. And so, you know, if you really want to challenge yourself to identify what is that secret source that the companies that everyone always points to, from the Unilevers to the Patagonias to so many others that we know, what is that secret source? They are very, very clear-eyed about who they are, their purpose, and they're very self-assured about holding themselves accountable to that. And so it's purpose 2.0 in the sense that there is no question as to whether they're going to do it or to what degree they're going to do it, but rather they're fully invested in how they bring it to life authentically. Simon, at the top, I had mentioned that you are a big believer in the power of co-creation, all stakeholders collaborating, even with competitors, which I found is interesting. How can we get brands to work together more collaboratively? Well, you know, as a leader, as an executive team, as a founder, you've got to sit there and go, what best serves our bottom line interests? What's going to drive our relevance? What's going to make sure that we're going to succeed in the future? And if you take a moment to step back and ask that question, you quickly realize that we got in this mess together and that we've all been doing various things that have led to, you know, carbon in the air, chemicals in the soil, plastics in the ocean. And it's not rocket science to say that we're going to have to get out of it together. We're all going to have to work together in new ways. And to that end, you know, that's why I've been so sort of passionate for the last 12 years about the power of we not only because we can scale our impact and accelerate our impact much more effectively, but when you engage all stakeholders working together to something larger than themselves, then everyone builds your business with you rather than you trying to build it, rather than how much marketing spend you've got, rather than trying to mimic the latest sort of strategy or tactic by your nearest competitor. You've really got to have a purpose that equips everyone to be an extension of your marketing department and inspire them to become an advocate and business builder with you. And this, again, points back to, you know, the movements we've built. And, and you know, we've worked with everyone from Tom's to Timberland to Virgin to Sony Pictures and SAP and many others. And, and I'll tell you that you are all in the people business. You are not in the sneaker business. You are not in the software business. You know, you are in the people business. And the power of your purpose is really to engage them, to bring their best selves, to activate their own agency for change. And when you do that, the number one thing that will benefit will be your business. Is that a particularly tough challenge for, let's say, sectors like telecommunications, for example? How do you get folks who are just constantly competing against one another in the marketplace to see that working together will actually benefit both organizations or several organizations? Yeah, I mean, there's many people who sort of scratch their head and go, well, how does this apply to, for example, B2B versus B2C, or as you say, telecommunications? You know, almost as a build on what I was saying about being in the people business, you know, telecommunications is really in the community architecture business. And what I mean by that is they allow you through the lens of the digital divide or, you know, communication or the role they play in their local communities in terms of everything from disaster relief to education to empowerment. They really are this sort of um, infrastructure of the social fabric that allows people to connect. And so when you start to look at things through that lens, you start to realize you're not purely in the, the business of your product, but in terms of, you know, 
um, being in the people business, being in the humanity business, your product plays a very, very meaningful role. So I would say telecommunications is perfectly suited because on a macro level, you're really reweaving that social fabric through telecommunications. Mm -hmm. But at a community level, a local level, you are providing skills and resources and opportunities that can absolutely transform people's lives and especially in moments of crisis. So, I mean, there's a, a move afoot within the CMO community to go from B2B and B2C mindset to B4H or Brands for Humans. Not sure if that's something you've come across. If it is, what's, what's your feeling about thinking in that sort of terms versus, you know, the old, old B2B, B2C? Yeah, I think there's been an evolution in this dialogue for many years from, you know, being green to being sustainable to being purposeful to being net positive and nature positive and ESG and on and on it goes. And Brands for Humans is the latest expression, the same way that we've seen different language in and around the climate crisis, which used to be called global warming. If you track it like I did in my, my book, Lead with We, you see that we've explored lots of different language over time. Here's what I think is foundational or fundamental behind all of this languaging. We don't need to learn something new. We need to remember what we forgot, which is we are fundamentally connected to each other as human beings. It's chemically hardwired into our brains. We can't deny it. And we are also undeniably connected to the planet we share. And this presents a problem because if what we do in business damages the whole the living systems, the social systems in which our businesses operate, we're our own worst enemy, in which case we do need to become, in your language, brands for humans, where we reconnect to each other when we serve people and we allow people to be their best and highest selves. You know, the funny thing is, Ken, I don't think this is rocket science. I think this stuff is so self-evident. We've just been sort of intoxicated by the power of media or, you know, all the engine of capitalism has been skewed too far towards, you know, lining the pockets of just a few people at the expense of the other of many others on the planet. And now the jig is up. I mean, everybody's future is threatened. But here's the great news. This is not the end of something. This is the beginning of the most extraordinary renaissance in business we've ever seen. Because all of these challenges are marketplace opportunities in disguise. And more and more companies, you see it today through the ESG lens, are waking up to who they can be when they work with nature rather than against it. And they leverage its inherent regenerative capacity to address the climate crisis and restore our future. So the smartest brands are not sitting there wringing their hands. They're saying, how do we need to show up differently to mobilize our people in ways that will serve our future, that will inspire them all to build our business? And that's what it means to build a movement. Boy, it's it's great to to see your level of optimism for that, and I assume that your clients share that as well. No, I think they're mildly terrified. They're paralyzed. <laughs> they're stalled. They're apoplectic. Completely so I'll wrong. Tell you, I'll tell you why I'm optimistic for a couple of reasons. I think the pain we're going through right now is wholly appropriate, and it's just feedback. The way that we have been showing up, more specifically in the last century, has created conditions that are now showing up in terms of the environment, in terms of natural disasters, in terms of social systems, is a feedback loop. And it's saying, hey, you know, what you're doing right now is coming at the cost of X, Y, and Z. And then we're sitting here going, damn, why is it like this? And it's like, well, we created it. It's not, you know, it's not hard to understand. And if we want to change, we're not going to change until we feel that pain, until we sort of 
feel the thrashing of the old ways of doing things. You see legacy industries pushing back. Of course they're pushing back because they made a lot of money doing what they did in the past, but it doesn't make a sustainable future possible. I'm also optimistic because think about this for a second. Never before have we all been as attuned to this crisis, this existential crisis we're facing, of which business is such a big part. Never before had this amount of people been that concerned. And never before has there been a greater consensus of people that we need to do something differently from heads of state to CEOs, Davos, you know, all the cops, everything across the board. And never before have we had the tools, the innovation tools from blockchain to AI, you know, to robotics to really address these, these exponential technologies. And never before have we had the weight of younger demographics coming through saying, you screwed our future. We want to do something differently. So how can we be pessimistic when we haven't even tried even a fraction of the the conspiracy of circumstances I just listed where everything's coming together at once? I think we are going to fall in love with the natural world all over again. We are going to serve ourselves and nature at the same time. And we are going to look back and say, this was a really painful course correction, but wholly appropriate. And we wouldn't have got where we are today if we hadn't gone through it. Oh, what great perspective. Simon, you you said that one of the most dangerous things a company can do is play it safe. Right. In other words, not take stands on issues that are near and dear to their stakeholders' heart. Yeah. So um, what are some best practices that you've learned to help minimize any kind of inherent risks that a company may take? Yeah, I think, you know, all stakeholders, your employees, the media, consumers, investors are very unforgiving these days. And we're going from a phase of being the carrot to the stick, where if you did something good, whether sustainability, ESG, B Corp, sustainable development goal commitment, you'd get a credit, you get a reputational bump, you'd attract talent and so on. The stakes in terms of our future are becoming so acute that you're now going to be penalized. It's becoming punitive, like we just saw the new greenwashing legislation um, in Europe uh, through the EU Parliament, and you're about to see the same here in the US, and you see you know, the Inflation Reduction Act and all these indicators that there is going to be regulation and compliance and science-based targets at a level we've never seen before. So with that as context, because you've got to be really clear-eyed about the world we're all really living in if you want to be relevant and succeed, let alone lead. With all of that as context, you know, what do you do? Well, firstly, you've got to deliver on the three table stakes, and they are fair and living wage, which is the number one most important you know, um, issue for Americans, according to Just Capital. You've got to deliver, deliver on sustainability, whatever that may mean to you through, you know, what where you want to lean into. And then thirdly, um, you know, DNI, diversity and equity and inclusion. And those three are kind of like your social license to operate. Above and beyond that, you've got to be unsafe in the sense that you stand up and speak up and show up in and around an issue that is relevant and authentic to your brand. It's not about jumping on every bandwagon that's out there because it seems to be a cultural flashpoint, but rather someone should be able to look, including your employees, look at what you're doing and show up and go, of course that makes sense. For example, we worked with Maybelline, on, you know, which is a beauty brand, uh, with Crisis Text Line on their Brave Together platform, which is all about mental health, because beauty affects the mental health of young kids. Or we worked with uh, Aqua de Gio, you know, Armani Beauty around providing clean water access to a million people in underserved communities, because water is the fundamental inspiration for Armani Beauty. There just has to be a logical connection between what you're committed to and, you know, the brand itself. 
And just to your point about being safe or unsafe, if you sit in the middle of the fairway and don't have a point of view, the people who believe in your brand won't believe you anymore. And the people you're trying to please on the other side of the fence won't be engaged. Mm -hmm. And in fact, if you look at all the research from Edelman Trust Barometer Report and so many others, you know, competent boards and others, it really bears out the case that there's an expectation at an executive CEO and company-wide level that companies, that they have a stance on social and political issues that are meaningful to their industry, their sector, their product, and they will be penalized if they don't do so. So this is not about waking up and doing good in the world, Ken. This is about saying, oh, what is the reality of the marketplace? What are, the, what are, what are our consumers or customer base rewarding? And how can we have a fresh mindset where these challenges are actually opportunities that we can solve for in ways that will build our business? Hello, Beyond Profit listener. If you're looking to better understand how to define a brand's purpose that will ignite the hearts and minds of consumers in your workforce, be sure to register for The Purpose Advantage. This on-demand, fully interactive training course includes knowledge checks, activities, assessments, and resources and tools to help you become a more purposeful marketer. Learn more by visiting ana.net slash purposeadvantage. That's ana.net slash purposeadvantage. And now, back to the show. I am speaking today with Simon Mainwaring, founder and CEO of the strategic brand consultancy, We First. You've mentioned a couple of times, Simon, about uh, the importance of creating a movement. Mm. How do you move from pure marketing to movement making? Yeah. What's your advice there? A couple of things I'd draw, a couple of distinctions. Um, I think we need to move from marketing to movement making, from advertising to activism, from calls to action mm. to calls to activism. You know, like we need from adv uh, advertising to advocacy. We need to recognize that our brands, in the same way that we are consciously or not negative influences on our future, are force multipliers for positive impact. And the way that you build a movement, and you know, I talk about it in the book Lead with We, is that we shift our mindset from being solely focused on ourselves and our product and our category and really adopt this collaborative, co-creative mindset. And you might say, okay, if you take a we mindset, I get it. You know, we're all connected. So what? But if your priority as a leader, as a CEO, as a founder, is a we collaborative co-creative process that's going to be have the greatest benefit, it changes how you show up as a leader. If you're a CHRO or a people officer, it changes the culture you build. If you're a marketer, it changes the products you take to market and how you take them to market. And it also changes your willingness to engage in and around issues, societal issues, environmental issues on a macro scale out in the world. And I just want to give you one specific example where it's so important. We hear from a lot of companies, you know, in our work, wow, we've got remote workers, we've got trying to get people back to the office, we've got hybrid. How do we create a sticky culture so we can win the talent wars and keep the people because it's you know much, much more cost effective that way? And they also say, our employees are coming to us and saying, oh my God, what have you done for us lately? Because for five grand more, I'll go somewhere else because we're kind of distributed now. So we don't really attach that social fabric anymore. That's a huge mistake. And I'll tell you why. When you adopt the we mindset, a movement building mindset, you shift from thinking it's the sole responsibility of a CEO, leadership, CHRO, or management to take care of employees. And you recognize that the culture you create is a co-creative act 
which is a function of the people who walk through the door or log on every day and how they show up. And you share that responsibility. And the reason you get buy-in to your culture is everyone is involved. And the reason it's fortified over time is because they're all given responsibilities to animate it and keep it alive. So instead of saying, employees saying, what have you done for me lately, leadership or management? It's rather, we all have a shared responsibility to define, integrate, foster a culture, and we're, we're all on the hook to bring that to life every day. And that's just one sort of carving carve out of what a we mindset is, and you need to do it as a leadership level, at a culture level, at your brand community level, and then out in society. So speaking of leading with we, can you just provide a couple of examples of a brands that are doing just that? I'll give you a large company uh, and a small company. A very large company I would point to is like IBM and what they're doing with Call for Code. Now, IBM is obviously one of the largest software companies in the world, and we all we all know who it is, but they have this program Call for Code, which is an open source developer platform where they identify the biggest challenges to humanity each year and then make their software, their code available to developers inside IBM, but also outside IBM from wherever they are in the world to solve for it. And they've got sponsors and, and partners and there are prizes and then they actually work with those winning prizes. And they've done everything from, you know, ventilators that um, monitor and regulate the amount of oxygen going to firefighters. You know, we had the big fires in California and Australia through to COVID distancing, through to the climate crisis, uh, to the global supply chain disruption. So they're really a company that is opening up its IP and inviting all stakeholders in, in service of something much larger than themselves and doing it in an annualized, real-time kind of way, and then investing to take that to scale, which I think is, you know, really, really fascinating. In terms of, you know, a smaller company, which speaks to what I was talking about before, there's a new company called Air Company, as luck would have it, um, out of New York, that looks at the carbon problem and says it's actually, actually an opportunity in disguise. And they're pulling, sequestering that carbon, and they're actually, they've created award-winning vodka, and perfume, but now jet fuel, carbon neutral jet fuel, which has now been adopted by the five major airlines out there. And what they're doing is they're taking a negative and turning it into a positive through which industries like the airline industry and more can actually deliver on their ESG commitments. And so what they're really doing is they're taking a multi-stakeholder approach where they are actually getting that carbon out there and get, taking it out to consumers, taking it out to the B2P B2 marketplace, taking it out to brands, and they're creating products and innovations that others can leverage to scale impact that will benefit everyone. And I think all of us, we're, we're swimming in brands every day that are talking about the good works that they're doing. And I want to mention one more point on this, Ken. Sure. We are at a moment in time where it's self-evident that we need to show up differently as businesses because our employees want it, because consumers want it. They can't unsee the way we showed up differently during COVID. But it's not a linear process. It's not like each year things are getting worse and each year we've got to do a bit more. These challenges are compounding out in the future and hurtling back towards us in the present. And it's creating this hockey stick of expectation where the more you change now, in terms of your ESG, B Corp, SDG commitments, and fully integrate your purpose to your entire company, the more you'll benefit from those market forces, those emerging market forces, whether it's capital, whether it's the talent you want, whether it's conscious consumers buying your products. And the longer you leave it, the worse positioned you are in terms of slipping off the back because it's an exponential expectation. It's not linear. 
So in our experience, working across so many different brands, you get to see this pattern recognition. And my advice would be go like hell now, because those brands that want to lead the future are, are running. Your first book, Simon, was produced in 2011, We First. Mm. Are there still lessons that apply today to the purpose movement? Oh, absolutely. Um, you know, the thing about books is timing, Ken. It's always timing. And, you know, in some ways, the shift from me first to we first was ahead of its time because I really couldn't buy a lunch to have a conversation about this with anyone. And now everyone's talking about what they're doing. And one of the chapters was called The Future of Profit is Purpose. And at that time, no one was even talking about purpose. But a couple of things I'd call out. You know, one is you need to be the celebrant of your stakeholder community, not the celebrity. So when we work with these brands of all different sizes, often they've got the best of intentions. They're putting precious resources out there. They're making ESG or sustainability commitments. And yet they're talking about it in a self-directed way. They're saying, this is what we did, or this is how many hours our employees volunteered and so on and so on. And they don't realize that people aren't engaging because they're talking about themselves. It doesn't matter what you're saying. It could be the, you could have won the Nobel Peace Prize, but you're talking about yourself. Mm -hmm. Instead of positioning your brand as a platform on which your stakeholders stand, your suppliers, your employees, your customers, and really focus your content and storytelling and engagement strategies on shining a spotlight on them. A, they'll look at it because it's about them. B, they'll share it because they're an advocate for the role that their own agency is playing in shaping a better future. And see, you know, you won't suffer all the, you know, accusations of self-directed, self-serving, greenwashing, and, and, and so on. And so, you know, being the celebrant, not celebrity of your stakeholder community. And, you know, I also, one other thing I call out was, you know, I made a statement in the book, the best hope for business is the business of hope. And really, your success as a company will turn on your ability to adapt and how agile you are to respond to today's marketplace. The expectations on ESG are going through the roof. The commitments towards the sustainable development goals are going through the roof. There's a proliferation of B Corps out there. And more and more, especially as demographics shift through the lens of employees and customers, Stakeholders are going to become not just impatient, but belligerent about companies that either aren't showing up or aren't articulate about how they're showing up. Why? Because they open their phones every day and there's scary headlines. Why? Because everything they hear about the future shows how we've compromised it, we've forfeited, you know, how the planet and species and biodiversity are suffering. So they want to know that they're part of the solution rather than part of the problem. So when we do the strategy work inside a company, we position them for that. Or when we do the culture building with their employees, it's really about helping all that employee base understand what they're doing so that they can all sing from the same hymn book. Or if we do the impact storytelling out there, it's so that they unlock the business value of investing in doing something that's going to have a positive impact. Those things still resonate. A couple of the things from the first book. Yeah, right, right. So you've been talking a lot about just the importance of being purpose-led and being a brand for humanity. But there are some rumblings out in the marketplace, especially from investors, that perhaps there's purpose fatigue. And you know, perhaps we've got to stop talking about that and focus again on, on making money and driving profit. What, what's your feeling about that being in the purpose space? I love that. I think it's yeah. awesome. I think mm -hmm. it just shows how what a curious creature we humans are. Mm -hmm. 
I'm tired of this purpose thing. Did we fix it already? How does our future look? Are we tired of climate yet? Because can we hand wave climate away? Can we hand wave the loss of biodiversity? Can we hand wave plastics in the ocean? Can we hand wave the degradation of the social fabric of so many communities? I mean, Mm -hmm. you may tire of that language, purpose. But as I mentioned before, whether it's green, sustainability, CSR, philanthropy, purpose, whatever it might be, it's all pointing to the same thing, which is for a long time, business has had a negative impact. And we weren't aware of that negative impact, most of us, because there wasn't the data, there wasn't the research or people were hiding it. But now the jig is up through the web and through so many sort of visceral examples, most notably extreme weather, we know that we've overplayed our hand. So to say that, oh, let's get back to making money, if that implies let's get back to the priorities that drove business and really informed business for the last several decades, then we are inviting our own catastrophe Mm. and we have no one to blame but ourselves. And here's the thing, this is not political. This is not about a certain company versus another company. It's not competitive. We're all in this together. You know, the climate doesn't care how much money you have, where you live or who you vote for. And the consequences of our actions are being visited upon everyone and not just the global South, increasingly in the developed world. And it's only going to get worse. So if you are a sentient being, if you're a father, mother, brother, cousin, sister, daughter, uncle, and you care about the future, then it makes a lot of sense to think about what role your business can play. So lastly, Simon, you touched on this uh, briefly earlier, just your, your whole optimism that you have about how business can benefit planet and people. When you look five, 10 years down the road, do you, do you foresee you know, a dramatic sea change in the way things are done now? I do. I really do. And, and, and I want to sort of back up for one second and say, sometimes I hear people say, because I'm lucky enough to do a bit of speaking and writing, you know, what gives you cause for optimism and what gives you hope? And I'm like, nothing gives me hope. I am a cause for optimism. You are a cause for optimism. We all need to be a cause for optimism. We all need to show up. Now, that doesn't mean we're not worried about the future and we have pessimistic moments, but that is a luxury we can't afford because if we throw up our hands or just keep wringing our hands, it's over. We need to consciously choose that we're going to show up and make a difference, however small, the type of food we eat, the car we drive, where we bank our money, let alone how we run our companies and what we make. We need to consciously choose to be optimistic because that empowers you to have a little win and someone else to have a little win. And they aggregate to a few little wins, which gives more people confidence and it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. And then ultimately, I do think that we we are good as human beings. I believe in the innate goodness of humanity. And I think we love our planet. And I think we've got confused and caught up in a system of our own making, and we're desperately trying to extricate ourselves. And I think we will get there. And so to answer your question, in 10 years' time, I think, if you just think back five years ago, the amount of people talking about purposeful business and ESG, how it's transformed, extrapolate that exponentially. We are going to look back and go, oh my God, how did we do it any other way? And here's how I characterize it in terms of optimism, Ken. As human beings, in the, we've known about the consequences of you know, industrialized capitalism and so on, and we could argue about the starting point, but in the 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, 2000s, 2010s, and we have kicked 
the can down the road. We are, we're like people sitting in a car hurtling towards a cliff. And now we see the cliff and we all have to grab the wheel all at once and throw the wheel really hard. And we're all going, oh, crap, why do we have to change the radio station? Or why do we have to throw the wheel? Why do we have to turn so hard so fast? It's because we left it for bloody 80 years or 100 years. And what's, what's so powerful about this is that in the first 15 degrees of that 90-degree turn, it's really hard because the G-forces want to pull you back to the way things are always done and hurl us off the cliff. But as more and more of us do it, between 15 degrees and 30 degrees, it gets a little bit easier. And from 30 degrees to 60 degrees, it starts to take on a life of its own. And between 60 degrees and 90 degrees in that turn, it becomes self-evident and we say, how could it have been done any other way? So I'm optimistic because we are in it. We are in the middle of the churn and the pain and the disruption in that first 15 to 30 degrees. And thank God we are, because on the other side of it, it only gets better. Simon May Waring, thank you so much for joining me on Beyond Profit. I greatly appreciate it. Thanks so much, Ken. Thanks. If you would like to learn more about We First or obtain copies of his books, please visit wefirstbranding.com. That's wefirstbranding.com. Until next time, thanks for listening. This has been a presentation of the ANA Podcast Network, powered by Odyssey.